We are doing a little bit of a, a teaching. I've got some wind in my sails since I came back from sabbatical. Thank God for that. And uh, last week, we looked at Moses, the reluctant savior. And uh, we're going to pick up that theme for another week. And uh, last week, if you'll recall that, you know, we, we said, you know, how Moses, bless his heart, one of the, the, one of the giants of the Old Testament, and not just the old and the new. You know, I was in Israel, and they still looked at Moses and Abraham, the, you know, the father of their, the Jewish faith. And we as Christians are, are told to look to Abraham, the, you know, the father of our faith. There's a tremendous connection with these great heroes of old. But we looked at Moses, and we looked at him with a realistic view. And he was truthfully a reluctant savior. He, he was not enthused or excited about the opportunity to go to Egypt and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And we spent much of the time looking at that. But then we finished up by saying, well, if, if God could accomplish so much through a reluctant savior, what could he do through a willing savior? And of course, many of you, myself included, you know, applied that to ourselves. Well, if, if I give God my willingness, if I make myself available, what could God accomplish? But of course, I, I wasn't actually gonna rest there. I went on to say, well, if only there were such a man, wouldn't it be extraordinary what God could do? And of course, I delivered the punchline, we have such a man in Jesus, Jesus Christ, the willing sacrifice who went to the cross at Calvary to die for the sins of the world when we were enemies, not even friends of his. And scripture comments later on in the book where it says, you know, a, a righteous man may die for his friends, but for his enemies? Woo. And it says, you know, while we were still enemies with Christ, Christ died for us. So that's where we were last week. Well, this week, I want to dive back into this story. So we're going to look at Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And this is a little talk called, What's That in Your Hand? What have you brought with you? What's that in your hand? And so just, just, let's just read this. Let me see if I can turn it up here. I'm beginning to lose pages out of this Bible. So when I turn up, I'm not sure I'm going to find what I'm looking for, you know. Quite literally, bits are falling out. You know. So here we have it then, Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. And it's the middle of the story that we read last week. If you missed it and would like to catch it, please just check out our website or our podcasts. Moses answered God, and this is in the middle of the conversation when the Lord is saying to him, I want you to go to Egypt. Moses answered God, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses, Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned back into a staff in his hand. So God gives Moses a miraculous sign. Last week I said, you know, that God did not object to this conversation and this dialogue. He, he doesn't... God... Is all authority and power is Jesus's, the scriptures tell us so, but, but he does not resent our conversations, even our questioning. There are occasions when we simply have to trust him. We walk by faith and not by sight. But God, as a good father, in, encourages us to engage with him, and there may be issues that you're talking to him about and converse, conversing with and praying about. That's great. And five of these questions Moses asked, four of them were okay. The last one, when Moses simply flatly refused to say, I'm not going to go send someone else, that's when Father got a bit ticked. 
um, had to sort that one out. But this is the middle of the conversation, and, and Moses is asking good questions. Look, there's, I hear what you're saying, but if I go, I mean, what? Well, supposing they don't believe me. And at this point, Father gives him this miraculous sign. In fact, he gives him three miraculous signs. We're just going to look at the first of them. And he says to him, what is that in your hand? Well, of course, Moses, as we know, is a shepherd. He was once a prince of Egypt. We may have seen the cartoon. We certainly know the story. And as a prince of Egypt, he would have had that royal staff. You know, when you've, if you've been to the British Museum and look at some of these sarcophaguses, gosh, I said it. You know, on these wonderful images of, of pharaohs, they, they, they have this sort of, you know, various, very striking looks, and they hold this kind of short staff. It's a symbol of authority. Moses, you know, we talk about growing up with a silver spoon in your mouth, or some of the older ones of us do, but Moses, he grew up with this staff of authority in his hand. He was a prince of Egypt, but that was lost. That was forfeited when he ran from his life, for his life having killed an, an Egyptian slave driver, and he just was terrified he ran. So that was forfeited, but now he has a different kind of staff. It's, it's a practical tool. It's also a symbol of, of his role. He is a shepherd now. This, this is a tool. It's something he needs for tending the sheep. He keeps them in order. He keeps them safe. He comforts them. <laughs> But he also uses it as he walks around that rocky land. And I said last week how I was struck by just how, how inhospitable that terrain is out there. It's extraordinary how anybody was able to travel any distance at all. is beyond me. Absolutely beyond me. I, I came down from Galilee down to Jerusalem, just, just west of the Jordan. And it's like a soda desert. It, it's not just, you know, desert with cactus trees or it, it's just like moonscape. So how anybody traveled at all. But Moses had his staff, it was his tool, it was also his, his, his means of getting about, but it was also a symbol. It was a symbol. It was probably his, something he probably had for a long time. It may have been that his wife gave it to him. It's funny, we don't have walking sticks today unless we, we need them. Our, my son Samuel has done his knee and he's hobbling around on a crutch. But my uncle and my, my father's generation, they would often, they'd wear hats and they'd often have sticks. And at home I've got this old malacca cane. It's a kind of, it's a kind of, um, it's a kind of, what do you call it? Bamboo. And my, I inherited it, and the bottom metal ferrule was worn because my uncle always uses it. I can see him now, pipe in his mouth with this cane. It was a favorite cane. He had many other walking sticks, but he always picked out that cane. It became part of his identity about who he was and what he did, and part of his persona. I see him in my mind's eye now with this cane. And Moses would have had this staff, and, and the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Is the Lord blind? No, there was a teaching moment about to take place here. And Moses said, well, you know what's in my hand? It's my staff. It's probably the only thing he had by the clothes he was standing in. You know, he wasn't carrying a Nike rucksack with his iPod in and all the rest of it, you know? It was just him and a hairy coat and a staff. And the Lord said, throw that on the ground. And as we know, as we saw it turn into a snake, and the Lord said, now pick it up by the tail, not the mouth, the tail, picked it up, and it went back into a, a, a staff again. 
And he said, with signs such as this, you will go to Pharaoh, and when you speak to the people, they will know that I've sent you. You see, when I come to the Lord, and when, uh, when, when you come to the Lord, I know, I, I know this because I'm a pastor, been nearly 30 years, we tend to rehearse our inadequacies before God. We tend to go through our checklist. Well, I, I sense that God's calling me to do that, or I feel moved by this, or I feel inclined to do that. But, but I couldn't do that because, 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 because. I've only got this, or I've only got that. I've only got this much of time available. And, and so it goes on, you know. But the reality is that all God's need, all God needs from you is whatever you've got. Teaching point. All God needs is whatever you've got. Be it a lot or a little. So don't disqualify yourself because you have got so much and so many responsibilities and you don't know how you could fit that into your program. Or don't disqualify yourself because you've got so little and you're exhausted and your life's falling apart. Don't disqualify yourself because there is no higher call than to serve the living God in whatever that, that might be. Be it a high calling or a, or a humble calling. All God needs is whatever you've got. Now, you know, what I didn't say last week, and I haven't got time to explore this now, but God knew Moses' heart. And this whole conversation began with God saying, I have seen, I have seen the misery of my people Israel in Egypt. I've seen their misery. Now, you could almost, it's not in the text, but you could almost insert in that, but you could almost say, the Lord was saying, I too have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I too. You see, what God knew about Moses was that Moses had seen their misery when he was a young man. And like a hot-headed young man is, and I was certainly a hot-headed young man, and, man, and some of you maybe too, but you see, when he saw that Egyptian slave driver beating seven bells out of a slave, a Hebrew slave, something rose up in him, something stirred him. There was a sense of, of injustice, and he just had to intervene. God knew that about Moses. Well, in Moses' eye, it all went horribly wrong. At least that was his view at that point. But you see, there was something in that young man. Just there is... Still something in the young man inside this old crinkly body called Chris Lane. Just as there is something in you, something of the divine in you that is moved and stirred by need and compassion. And you want to serve. But somehow you don't know how you can because of your inadequacies or your busyness or whatever. So God knew that about Moses. He knew that as he spoke to Moses, something inside of Moses would have been stirring. Although Moses put up a good fight, he knew that Moses had been moved by the plight of the Israelites in Egypt. He knew that. It was already there. So God takes that seed of compassion or whatever it is within us, he takes whatever we've got, and that's all he needs, and he begins to work a miracle. Some of you know what I'm talking about. 
you look back and you think, how did, how did God ever do that? I was just, couldn't have seen that coming. How, how could I, God ever do this? How, or whatever. I'm looking at Marna. Marna came with a, uh, embarrassing Marna here, but she heads up our extraordinary women's ministry. She came with a, with a bit of a stirring, a passion for, for, yeah, for, for women. And said, could I do something during the week? I'm not quite sure what, but let me have, do this. And we've got people hanging off us now. We don't know what to do with so many who come. And it's, it's a challenge and difficult, and we have to make difficult decisions about that. But there was this move, this, this sense, this call, and, and a willingness in Marna's case. I mean, you may, you may walk through this church in the morning, and, uh, and you may think, you know, gosh, God bless Kev and Carol, our children's pastors, and Boy, they do such a great job. You know, I, I really hope that they feel encouraged. I really hope that, that they know they're doing a good, good job. You know what you're doing at that moment? You're expressing empathy and compassion. Maybe God is calling you to do more than just say a little prayer. Maybe God is calling you to, to actually offer some time out of your busy schedule to serve in the children's ministry. And you're saying, but what, me? I mean, I'm, I'm an old crusty guy. I can't do that. Or I'm too busy. All this kind of thing. I mean, when we start doing the Moses thing, the reluctant savior thing, but God will just take whatever you've got. That's all he needs. And he'll begin to do something of kingdom import and kingdom significance. Similarly with the youth. Similarly with prayer ministry, whatever, you know, this church has so many things going on. But if you have a stir, a stirring, do more than just say, I will pray about it, and we value your prayers. Don't be a reluctant savior like Moses. Offer. Go exercise that little bit of faith. Speak to Kev, speak to Celeste, speak to whoever, and, and offer your time, because you may feel that there must be someone better than me to do this, but if God calls you, you will, you will succeed. You will succeed. Now, truth is, you know, um, I could actually finish the teaching there, and at one point I thought I would do a few weeks ago. But the more I've read this story, I've found myself asking questions of God about it. And I felt that there's a deeper teaching on this. I'm not saying more significant, but there's something behind the teaching. And I want to know whether or not you'd like to hear that, because we could just stop there and go and have, well, I was going to say go and have coffee, but we can't this morning. But, but do you want to hear a deeper teaching? You may not like it. Let's have a show of hands. Who wants to hear a deeper teaching? Okay, well, some of you may not like the deeper teaching. You may find it a bit of a wriggle, but I, I tell you the reason I smile and dare to share this with you is that you'll love the ending. You'll love the ending. So the deeper teaching, I found myself, having read through this, I've honestly, I've been thinking about preaching this probably from since June. It's such a simple little thing. It's not like, you know, life message and they're going to do a TV series on it. It's just, a, just one of many teachings I feel that God wants to, us to bring and consider. But as I've been reflecting and going back to it, I suddenly thought to myself, and it suddenly seemed to me to be ridiculous. And it happened when I was up, it first dawned on me when I was up on this, in this ranch in Idaho with Phyllis, my wife, staying with some dear vineyard pastors there, and they have this lovely ranch, and they were talking about rattlesnakes, and, 
and how you, how you kill a rattlesnake and what you do with the, the rattle and, and uh, just a load of stuff like that. And I was thinking about, you know, you know they, they have this kind of thing where they collect the rattles. And I just thought to myself, I, I just don't even want to go near a snake. Forget the rattle. You know, you can keep the rattle. I don't want the rattle. They just leave the thing alone. And suddenly I found myself thinking about Moses and this, this stick and this snake thing. And I said to the Lord, I said, well, what is, are you saying to me something about this? What is the significance of the stick turning into a snake? Well, there's an obvious one. It was long and thin, and it was easier for God to make a snake out of a stick. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is God can make a man rise up out of the dust. He could have made it a gnu. You know, he could have made it a duckbill platypus. It was really no difference to him. It really was. But he made it a snake. And then he told Moses to grasp by the tail. Well, a lot of Bible scholars talk about the symbolism behind that. And they talk about, well, the snake was Egypt and da-di-da-di-da. And it was symbolic of how Moses was going to take the snake. And, but, you know, I, I felt that there was something more than that. Because, of course, in Scripture, the snake has a connotation Anybody want to earn a brownie point? It's not a big deal, this, but where does the snake come up in, in scriptures? In Genesis. Genesis. There's almost a hiss in that. Genesis. Genesis. Of course, because Satan comes to man, Adam and Eve, as a snake. And, and the snake is portrayed as a deceiver. And in fact, God says to Moses, he says, there will always be enmity between you and the snake. You will kill it and it will bite your heel. So the snake has quite profound biblical connotations. The snake is the deceiver. It's a representation of evil and, and, and has a very negative press. Sorry if you have a boa constrictor in an aquarium in the corner of your flat called Eric. I'm sure he's a lovely creature. Just don't bring him near me. But the reality is that it, nothing's an accident with God. I, I'm learning this more and more. God is not like some old duffer who keeps forgetting where his spectacles are. Nothing is a mistake with God. And I, as, I, as I dialogued with the Lord about this, I, I, I began to realize that the Lord was trying to point something out to me. This staff... This favorite staff of Moses, this only staff of Moses, was really all that he had left. It was the last vestige of authority that he had that he'd brought with him from Egypt. Yes, he had exchanged a Pharaoh's short, stubby, I've forgotten the name of it now, I know the name, but I've forgotten. He's exchanged that symbol of his authority and power that a Pharaoh had for a shepherd's staff. But there was this sense of connection with it. This staff was what he leaned on. And I think what the Lord wants to say to us is that we need to be careful upon what we lean on. What are you leaning on? I, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, I've not got anything in particular in mind. I've got everything in mind. You know, we can lean on our identities. We're in the middle of the Restore course, and... That's going tremendously well. And Linda and this outstanding team that she has are teaching through Restore. And, and one of the key issues there is our, our identity because so often our identity is misplaced or misformed. It can be a positive thing. It can be, uh, it, it can be what we call 
an ego problem. You may think you are more than you are, but very often we actually think we are less than we are, or it's distorted by experience, and we have a victim mentality, and our identity becomes a victim, and, and to get to move into life, into health, we have to actually make a conscious decision to leave beside something that has become very comfortable for us, the victim's mentality. It can be our status in the community, or our status at work, or our, our status down at the golf club, or it can be our, uh, the money in the bank. I mean, in anything, and these things, you know, many of them are good things per se, but, but what really I, I'm getting at here is that quite honestly, anything, anything can end up as a snake to us, anything. I'm probably really throwing the AV guys out, which is, which is tough, but... But actually, interestingly enough, the snake thing, this snake motif, was to crop up again. There was an occasion in, in Two Kings where Moses, at this point of the story, and it's some way further on where we are now, but he's actually gone to Egypt and he's brought the people out of Israel, and they're going around the rough side of the desert, as often they seem to, and they were suddenly, the Lord sent a, a, a plague upon them, a judgment, because they were grumbling against him. They were grumbling against the leaders. They were just dissatisfied and just not much fun to be around. And so the Lord said, right, we're going to send them a lesson. So he sent them these poisonous snakes, these, which are very common in that part of it. Suddenly there was a dearth of them, and people were dying. They were being bitten by these things and dying. And they cried out to God. They cried out to Moses. They said, we're all dying here. What's the matter with you? You know, Oh, God, what have we done wrong? Anyway, the Lord said to Moses, he took mercy upon them, and he said, okay, look, what I want you to do is I want you to get this, make a bronze star, uh, snake, kind of a symbol thing, put it, put it on a, a stake, put it in the middle of the camp, and if anyone gets bitten by this thing, you haven't got to run for miles to get the anti-venom the anti or what do they call it, just look to the snake, just look to this, this symbol of life and wholeness, and you will be well. Curiously enough, that symbol, as many of you will know, they call it the star of life. You see it on the back of paramedic bands. Not so much in this country, but you do see it around. It's a kind of a blue star, and it's got a staff with a snake on it. So this was given. This was something that was a blessing. It was just a, you don't need to go to your elders. You don't need to come to Moses and get a special prayer. Just If you get bitten, just look into the center of the camp. There's the snake. It's where everybody can see. It's on a great big pole. It was a good thing. It was part of... But the thing that actually kept them from dying because of these snakes, phew. But you know what it tells us in 2 Kings 18.4, Neshitan. If you can skip to that one, the next one, thank you. Here we go. Guess what we did with it? This good thing. Hezekiah, who was a great king, got rid of loads of idols, do you see what it says there? He removed the high places, smashed up sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Neshetan. You see, what they did was they took this good thing, God's provision. All things are good. They're all gifts from God. But then they became obsessed with it. It became a snare to them. They began to lean on it. They began to worship it. They gave it a name, Neshutan. And actually, in Canaanite religion, in that thing, snake worship was quite a big deal. So they wanted to be like the other nations, not like God's nation, but they wanted to be like the other nations. What tall? We want a God. Let's have Neshutan. And so 
Moses, uh, Hezekiah had to destroy this. Now, what I think the Lord is getting at here is that we, we, it's time we did a bit of an inventory. It's time, and I'm not saying we're going to do it together, we're going to hand out bits of paper and stuff like that, but it's time that we actually reflect upon our lives, and there are seasons of this. And it's time that we look at our lives and ask the Holy Spirit, say, well, show me, what is it that I'm leaning too heavily on? You see, Moses, the reluctant savior, leant on his staff, and in fact, God gave gave him back that stuff, and that was a feature of his life and ministry. He redeemed it, but the willing Savior, Jesus, had no staff to lean on. The willing Savior went to the cross naked. Of course, in the pictures, we dress him up and put a few decent clothes on him and some strategically placed loincloths, but he went with nothing. The willing Savior went with nothing other than this trusting God. And that's really where God wants us to be. That's the journey that, that he has us on, that we will enjoy God's gifts and the good things and, and, and bear with the difficult things. We'll do it with grace and mercy and compassion and patience and fortitude. This is something my wife is often telling me. But the reality is that God would have us be naked in his presence, not leaning on anything. No comfortable staff, be it money, sex and power, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Not be our status, not be our kids. We can make gods of our kids. We can have such high expectations of them, we make them little gods. High expectations of education and our kids' need for that and their prowess in that. And then we get terribly cross and very broken when they have a bit of a flip out in their teens and all these things. We, we, we need to be careful about what we lean on because things that are good can end up a snake to us. It's actually the way of man. As you read through the scriptures, you read that time and again, we take that which is good and we turn it round and we turn it inside out and we mess with it so we end up worshiping it, serving it. Now that's, if you like, the bad news. The good news though, the good news is, is interestingly, but not surprisingly, found in John chapter three. Let's just turn that up, we're nearly finished. John chapter 3. In fact, curiously enough, there's even a reference to Moses in this passage. John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God. See, the reality is that we have this tendency, this unfortunate tendency to turn anything, anything, we will worship anything left to our own devices. 
And if the message finished there, if this sermon finished there, you could be forgiven for leaving this place saying, well, is there any hope for us? Why do we bother? <laughs> How depressing is that? Well, the only way, the only reason why we can face up to that reality about ourselves and the things we lean into and lean on is because actually God has given us his son Jesus who was lifted up just like the snake in the desert. But this time he's a living savior and he's there not to condemn us, says that. So if you're feeling condemned or convicted, well that conviction is a good thing, condemnation is not. Conviction is a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Lord sends his spotlight into our lives and highlights something that is, that is out of kilter. And, but the difference is that when God does that, as we seek his face, as we seek forgiveness, so we find we are not condemned. Shame falls away. And we find ourselves restored to sonship. We step into the light and freedom. And we, uh, as we sung, you know, these great old hymns, our burdens fall off and we walk away. A free man or woman. Of course, the enemy wants to keep us in that place of condemnation, dragging these huge, great burdens of unforgiveness and much like that. And that doesn't help. It kills us. But God's plan is that through his son Jesus, whatever we find ourselves convicted of, we bring to him at the cross that Jesus lifted up in the center of the camp. And our sins fall away and our burdens fall away and our chin is lifted and we find ourselves restored and made whole. And this is for anyone who believes in him. Of course, if you don't believe in him, well, then the scripture says you're condemned. You're carrying that condemnation with you. Well, why would you do that? Why would you do that when there is a savior? So, all God wants is all that you have. Don't disqualify yourself. If God has been speaking to you about offering for some ministry, go for it. And know the joy of it. You will know blessing and fulfillment in whatever that is. But a little, a little word in season to us, maybe we need to reflect upon our lives and ask ourselves and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight what are those things we're leaning into, my career, the next promotion, whatever it is. You know, we're not chasing around after little idols like other societies and cultures do. We are chasing more sophisticated things, and I'm being slightly ironic there. But whatever he highlights to us, don't let the enemy laden up guilt upon you. Own it, face up to it, and ask God's forgiveness and deliverance from it. Because we have a savior. We have Jesus. And the scripture says that whoever believes in him will be saved. Let's all stand and pray. And Henry, perhaps you could come and bring the team up here. Father, we want to say thank you to you because you have anticipated our every need. And the truth is that much of our, we, we, we spend so much energy running from you or looking at you askance or begging that you don't shine your light into this area of our life or that area of our life. But there really is no need because we have a savior in our, in our Lord Jesus who was lifted up to, set, to die for the sins of the world and there is no condemnation in him. 
So wash us clean, Lord Jesus. Wash us clean. May we not hide from you like Adam did in the garden, fearful of what you might say or see in him. May we, may we present ourselves before you and know your strength and your forgiveness. And so, Lord, we honor you and we worship you and we thank you that you take such trouble and time with us and show us such, such extraordinary patience. Thank you, Lord. Amen.